sound of worship this morning. Thank you for leading us worship team so well. Well, let's pray together here. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Lord Jesus, we come this morning to especially celebrate your entry into Jerusalem and all that it signifies. And as the whole congregation was shouting Hosanna, we know that this comes from the prophecy in Psalm 118. And it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the king who entered in righteousness in Jerusalem on that day, and then after your cross and your resurrection entered into heaven on our behalf. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, for you, Christ, have entered not, had not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's your merits of suffering and of death and of righteousness that we proclaim today. You are most worthy of our praise. And the psalmist continues, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Lord Jesus, we do praise you that you are the cornerstone, the foundation, but that the builders have rejected those powerful religious leaders rejected you, the king. You were crucified by them, but rose from the dead in great victory. And so we proclaim with the apostles, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The psalmist continues, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. And Jesus Christ, we praise you for by entering into Jerusalem, you implied a victory that the crowds sensed but didn't fully understand at that time. And they shouted this blessing from Psalm 118 of salvation in your name. And we echo it this morning. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And we pray this morning, Lord God, as well, that as we look into your scriptures and into the prophecy of Psalm 110, that you would show us more of your goodness, O Lord, and of your steadfast covenant love toward us. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, this morning is Palm Sunday, as you've heard repeatedly. It's a time when we remember as Christians three main things. First of all, Jesus entering into Jerusalem as our king on that day, of course, the promised descendant of David, the one that everyone has been looking forward to seeing. Also, we praise Jesus Christ because he's reigning in heaven for us presently, right now enthroned anew after his resurrection and ascension. Third, we praise Jesus because he is going to be the soon and reigning king upon this earth, that he will come back in glory and vindication and all the world will bow before him and worship. We also know that this day is also known as Passion Sunday, and that's because it begins Passion Week, the week of Jesus' suffering. It anticipates his cross and his resurrection, and so we remember him this morning as we talk about him as the priestly king. We're looking at Psalm 110 this morning. It's the most quoted and the most alluded to passage in the Old Testament in the New Testament. So out of all of the passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 110 is the favorite of the apostles. And the reason's obvious, because as we read Psalm 110, we as Christians know that our Lord Jesus Christ is that Messiah. He's the priest that's talking about. He's the king that is talking about. He's the judge that it's talking about. He is the one who has ascended into glory at the right hand of the Father and will return in glory. So our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter series this year is all going to be Psalm 110. So the plan is to start today with looking at the psalm itself primarily, with just the hints and the previews that are there of fulfillment but not to really get into them all. So I hope you can make it to the whole series, both this morning and Friday night, 7.30, and as well next Sunday on Easter. Because on Good Friday, what we're going to do is we're going to explore and meditate on the use of this psalm in just one book in the New Testament, and that is the book of Hebrews, and how the book of Hebrews looks at this psalm. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to delight ourselves in how our Lord Jesus Christ himself used this psalm in referencing himself. And then, of course, we'll also look at Luke and others in the New Testament and how they apply Psalm 110 to our Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be a fascinating discovery together. So we're going to learn all three of these times together that we have to worship that there's a greater victory still with this eternal priest and king. It's the same thing we're going to learn every single time that there is a greater victory still with his eternal priest and king. And so in Psalm 110 this morning, we see that Yahweh gives two promises and articulates those victories. That's really the outline for us this morning. It's very simple. There's two sections in verses 1 to 3. We have a promise given in verse 1, and then the victory in verses 2 to 3. There's an oracle that's given about God's king. And then in verses 4 through 7, in verse 4 we have a promise an oath, really, about God's priest. And then we see that unfolding in verses 5 through 7. So let me read Psalm 110 to you. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, Psalm 110, just a brief background, is a royal psalm celebrating the future king that would come in David's dynasty. And the original setting of the psalm is really unknown um, and debated, but yet the psalm has always been seen as a messianic psalm, a psalm that predicts the Christ, the Messiah, to come. And whenever we run into these types of passages in the Old Testament, and you can just sense, oh, I know this is talking about Jesus. I know this is talking about Jesus. Where is that passage in the New Testament? Because I know it's about him. I think of 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says this about how the prophets experienced their own writings. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they really weren't serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So let's look together at this psalm and celebrate the greater victory that is still to be ours. So the oracle begins in verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the psalm actually begins with the superscription, as all the psalms do. The superscriptions are a part of the psalm. And it begins with this, a psalm of David. Now, we've probably discussed this many times before, but in Hebrew, that little preposition, the lamed there, can mean many different things. It could be a psalm of David. It could be a psalm about David. It could be a psalm for David. It could be a psalm by David. But in this psalm, we can be certain that it's actually by David that he authored this particular psalm because our Lord Jesus tells us directly that David spoke by the Holy Spirit, and he references this psalm. And it's the Holy Spirit who gave him this oracle, this prophecy for us. And we also need to keep this superscription connected to the psalm because it helps the psalm make sense to us because it's precisely, it is a messianic psalm and it's been understood that way from the beginning. The Messiah himself would be one of David's sons and part of his dynasty. And so then, verse 1, uh, Yahweh speaks to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, the first Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh speaks to my Lord, and the my Lord can refer to either the king himself or a descendant of the king. It can be legitimately translated either way, but ultimately we know that Yahweh is speaking of the Davidic dynasty and of that specific one who would come. Now, Jesus' well-known point, he used this psalm in his debates with religious leaders. His well-known point is that this psalm is a direct reference to him. That's what is going on here. And furthermore, that he is not just some mere descendant of David, some other king, but that he is the Lord in a higher sense of that term. Not just Lord like nobility or royalty, but he's the divine Messiah. And so David even had a sense of this when he composed Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot more to talk about on this in Psalm 110, and we will in our series. But the kingship of David was a theocratic kingship. In other words, it was directly entrusted to David. A prophet anointed him. And as long as he ruled in Yahweh's interest and paid homage to him, Yahweh would support him. He's enthroned, if you will, installed at the Lord's right hand, meaning it's a position of great honor and power and protection. And I know that all of us are thinking ahead in the Bible anyway to Jesus fulfilling this. It's very hard not to, to read passages like this and just jump ahead. The promise here is for an extended dominion over all the king's enemies, that God himself would give military victories, and God is the one who determines who wins wars. And in the ancient Near East, conquerors would often put their feet on the necks of the vanquished kings that they conquered and then summarily execute them. For example, we have Joshua and the conquest of the five Amorite kings. You can read that story on yourself. It illustrates it in Joshua 10. And then, of course, in the book of Isaiah, there are multiple images of walking over people. And that's what it's talking about. In other words, it's the same idea that he would make them his footstool. And the point in the promise to God's king is that this one greatest king who would come, he would be the one who would conquer all. You know, one of the major themes of the book of Psalms is about this Messiah and his kingdom. So there are really two introductions to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And Psalm 1 tells us about a blessed man, and ultimately about the blessed man. And Psalm 2 tells us about a king. And Psalm 2 reads this way, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like in a potter's field, a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now this is going to be continually developed in Psalm 110, that Psalm 2 is even fulfilled. And so the victory then we read about is in verses 2 and 3. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So we learn here that Yahweh is the one who grants strength to his king. He sends power to his chosen king, and he gives the victory so that he can rule over his enemies, even forcing them to obey. Now, verse 3 is very, very tightly written. And the Hebrew, and it can be very difficult to translate, but the picture is very, very clear, and you'll have multiple translations out there. But there will be many troops volunteering, in other words, on that day of his power. Many troops volunteering. And the day of power is going to be further described in verses 5 through 7. So these troops, they've consecrated themselves, they've prepared themselves in, holy, in holiness, and they've given their lives to the king's service. 
their appearance is going to be sudden and abundant, like the dew appearing in the morning all over the ground or all over the hills or mountains, whatever your translation says. But they're going to appear youthful and valiant for the victory of their king. And so you can think about that, of course, in the historical context for David and his conquests. You can also think about it, of course, for Jesus Christ and the ultimate victory. There are some illustrations in the Old Testament with similar language. For example, in Judges chapter 4, we read about this one enemy, Jabin, king of Canaan, who is an enemy of God's people, and we see this type of thing happening. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin's Jabin, king of Canaan, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly. Same language. The people offered themselves willingly to bless the Lord. And we see a degree of this in David and Solomon's reigns as well, that much more is promised. There's much more to be seen in that one descendant who would come, the Messiah himself, at his return. It will be universal on that day, the day of judgment over all the earth. You probably see some New Testament themes already in this little section in verses 2 and 3. For example, just how we as God's people give ourselves to the service of our king. Give all of ourselves, our resources, our purposes, our energy, our strength. And so we read something like this in the New Testament in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And surely, we're all thinking about the return of Christ as we read this and the role of his people in that conquest, which is actually we have a role. And that's where the psalm is ultimately going to take us in verses 5 to 7. And so just looking at part 1, we have this oracle, this prophecy about God's king. Can you see the development coming? Even taste it in regards to how it's referring to Jesus Christ? And can you anticipate the church's blessing and sharing in the glory with him on this day of power that's coming still? Because there's a greater victory still that's to come when Jesus Christ returns as our eternal priest and king. Well, second, we have this oath about God's priest and the promises in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh speaks again about this messianic king. The most curious of all here, and the promise now is made with a solemn oath. He will be an eternal priest as well as the final and eternally reigning king on David's throne. Now, of course, we can talk about his eternality now in our understanding because we know who the Messiah really was and would be. He's the eternal son of God who lives forever. Now, we have anticipations of this sacerdotal king, if you will, a a king and a priest combined in one office in David and Solomon. To some degree, they did on special rare occasions perform priestly functions, even though they were kings. They would make offerings and give blessings that were really reserved for the priests to do. But it wasn't very often, and it was highly unusual and and abnormal, and it really makes us wonder for how Scripture unfolds that that was set up by God himself just to promise the Messiah that it would be a foreshadowing of it. And as you may know, the law states that the offices of prophet, priest, and king are to remain in separate people. But in Jesus Christ, they're combined. 
Now, this promise is absolutely astounding because we have an eternal dynasty in Jesus, and we have an eternal priesthood, and they're united forever. And of course, it's even more glorious to us who know how this is going to play out. And you can read the book of Hebrews and get the whole storyline. But David and the people of God were told by God that this dynasty would last forever. In Psalm 89, it says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's a promise that was well known by the people of God, often articulated, hoped in strongly. It's a biblical theme. And the fulfillment would come in Jesus Christ. Now, this priesthood that we're talking about here would be after the order or after the pattern of Melchizedek. So he, was, he came before uh, the Mosaic law, and so it's not a priesthood in the type of Aaron and Levi, but it's a superior priesthood because it preceded it. And it most simply means, initially and simply, that this priesthood involves a kingship, that they're tied together, because Melchizedek, as a historical person, was a priest of the one true most high God, and he was king over what would be Jerusalem. And you can read about the whole story. It's in Genesis 14, about Abraham and Melchizedek. Now, there's a whole lot to say about Melchizedek. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 10 are all about Melchizedek. You didn't know he was so important, did you? I mean, that's five chapters in the book of Hebrews, dedicated to this one guy, that when you're reading Genesis, you think, well, that's a cool story, but I don't think I'll ever see this guy again. And then he points up, he shows up again in Hebrews. It's a very important part of our faith. In fact, the book of Hebrews describes the understanding of Melchizedek's priesthood as basic Christian doctrine. Basic Christian doctrine. And so we'll talk about this on Good Friday because that's where Hebrews is and we'll, we'll just we'll explore all of that. But the key verse this morning I want to bring your attention to would be Hebrews 6, 19, and 20. So Hebrews 6, 19, and 20. And it says this in comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So we'll talk more about Melchizedek later. But then we go on to the victory in verses 5 through 7. And we read, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So the enthronement, the enthronement of this Davidic king, this Davidic Messiah, this eternal priest, is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. There's a whole lot more to fall out. And so here in this Psalm 110, we move, if you will, from the book of Hebrews that talks about the cross of our Lord Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, his, his reigning on high, to the book of Revelation. And you notice that the day of his power from the first half of the psalm is now repeated in the second half as the day of his wrath, verse 3 and verse 5. Same day. God will be the strength and power for his Messiah when it comes to that final day. He's at his right hand, meaning that he's doing all these things for him. Again, a repetition from verse 1 
part one of the psalm, to part two. And acting as one, that will be the day of the complete shattering of all the rulers of the earth who think they're so great. It will likewise be the day of judgment for not just those people, but all normal people who think they're so great. All the inhabitants of the earth who rebel against the King of Heaven, against our Lord Christ, who think they are the ones who are really the gods, will be destroyed. So this eschatological day of the Lord, this day of vindication, is foretold by many of the prophets, and you, know, you can just start reading, pick a prophet in the Old Testament, and you'll get to this story, because it shows up in virtually all of them. But there are two main things, themes, if you will, that are going to take place on the day of Christ's return, that day of power, that day of wrath, and it's judgment upon his enemies, but a blessing upon his people. Judgment upon his enemies, but blessing upon his people. So if we're moving, if you will, from the book of Hebrews to the book of Revelation, this is what we read at the, at the end of the story in Revelation 19.11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it talking about Jesus Christ here, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Back to Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then the blessing comes shortly after that in Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in this city, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, and then at the end of the psalm, the very close in verse 7, he paints a picture of a battle-wearied warrior. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. A battle-wearied warrior, exhausted, yet still pursuing, but refreshed in the midst of doing God's will. And the psalm concludes with the Messiah lifting his head in triumph, that he has completed the task. And then we enter into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So there's an oath here. Are you ready for that day? Now, of course, readiness has to do with seeking forgiveness from this eternal priest. Remember, that's who he is. There's no other priest that can grant you eternal forgiveness. Only this priest can grant you that. So we have to seek forgiveness from Jesus Christ and repent of our sin and put our faith in what he would do on that cross. Also, another way of talking about it is we have to seek refuge in this eternal king. You see, every other king, if you seek refuge in that king, that king is going to be defeated by this king. 
And so the only way you're going to be safe is by having your refuge placed in the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So there's an oath in the second part of this psalm about God's priest. I'm sure you can see the development coming in regards to Jesus Christ. It's so obvious. And I hope you can anticipate the blessing that you will have as part of God's people, as part of his church, and sharing in the glory on that day when he is vindicated, all his purposes are vindicated, and his people, we are vindicated. There's a greater victory still that we're waiting for with this eternal priest and king. Now, in simply reading Psalm 10, so try to step back for a moment from a lot of the understanding we have of its fulfillment. But in just simply reading Psalm 110, we wonder, who could this son of David be that would be a perfect priest, a perfect king for us? And how could it be that a king could be eternal? And how could it be that a priest could live forever? I hope you feel somewhat unsatisfied this morning. That's my purpose in preaching today, is to leave you unsatisfied. You know, what didn't I tell you? There are things I didn't tell you that you wanted me to tell you. What didn't you hear this morning? And think about maybe, maybe that's what the people of God who originally heard this psalm felt like. When they first heard it, when it was repeated so often in hope, it's like, Please, just tell us who he is. Well, there's something very specific that we can all set ourselves to do this Easter week. You can review this psalm. And it's also helpful to review a passion story. Just pick one. We're going to, as a congregation, do Mark this, this series. So we read from Mark this morning. We'll read the storyline from Mark Good Friday and the storyline on Easter. So you can use Mark. It starts in chapter 11, goes through chapter 16. Those are good things to do, but here's a, here's a special assignment if you care to accept it. And that is, I want you to use your Bible study tools and see if you can find every single use and allusion to Psalm 110 that is in the New Testament. There are a lot of them. So that would be your assignment, is to find out where Psalm 110 is quoted and referenced in the New Testament. And try to understand it on your own. So how does this work that Psalm 110 is fulfilled? It will be a great blessing. You're going to need a little bit of time in your schedule, though, so you're going to have to make room for that study assignment if you want to do it. But you see, this sermon this morning is really meant to be a meditation more than anything upon a further meditation for this week because that's how we approach Passion Week as Christians. It's an opportunity to remember, to think, to reflect, to meditate on all the glories of Jesus Christ, our suffering, but yet our eternal priest and our eternal king. There's a greater victory still. As we read Psalm 110, we look ahead, well, there's going to be a great victory on this Good Friday as we celebrate on Jesus' cross. There would be a great victory when Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter morning. There would be a great victory 40 days later when he descends into glory. There'll be a greater victory later when he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon his church. And of course, there's going to be a greater victory still when our Lord Jesus returns. Let me pray for us. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are the eternal priest and the eternal king. 
We praise you that by your sacrifice of yourself, that you offered the propitiation for our sin, that you were the substitutionary atonement that we needed, and that it's complete, that our sins are eternally forgiven by you, and that we are eternally safe in your arms. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are reigning now in heaven, that you're going to reign soon upon this earth in open glory, which will be such a blessing to us. And we look forward to that day and anticipate it with great faith. And we ask that you would build up our hope as your people. We pray these things for your glory among us. Amen.